I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey, thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. I hope everything is well with you today. I'm doing pretty good. So tell me, what is today's episode about? Well, today we're going to do something experimental. I know after last week, which um, sex and sailing was a pretty blunt and forward-thinking episode that was very, very popular, I wanted to do something that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I'm calling it the Dry Port Series. And what I mean by dry port series is that, and I'm not talking about a dry port that you drink, although I do truly love a very dry port. Um, we may have to stop right now for me to go get some. No, I'm sorry. I'll keep going. Um, the dry port series is, there's a lot of ports around the world that were at one time on the water, and they were uh, extremely important. Now, some ports have sunk, like in Alexandria, there are ports that have sunk, and um, it's, you know, 45 to 50 feet, um, you know, off of the, off of uh, the coast, and that's where the port is. But this is the dry port series, and these are, these are landlocked ports, usually up a river, and um, in this case, it's about Seville, Spain, which was... Probably the richest port in the world. It's where all the Spanish gold from the New World came and went through. And it created a, a huge bureaucracy there. I think some of us have seen um, the medieval shipyard that is there. It was, uh, I'll, I'll post some pictures of it. It was, um, it was in Game of Thrones. Um, in the 15th, 16th century, maybe even a little earlier than that. Uh, so, but the stories, um, the experimental part of the stories is that when we sail, we come into a port, a brand new place, we always hear a story that is kind of related, but not really related to sailing. And, but it changes our course. It makes us think, it makes us develop. And that's sort of what these stories are about. So this is the first in a series called The Mosaic Artist. Great. Take it away, Scott. For Carlos, it was just another day. He woke when the pigs, who shared the downstairs room with him, muzzled his neck to wake up, snorting in his ear, He sleepily pushed them away and complained that it was too early. Dawn had paused a moment before illuminating the manger. He rose half asleep. He scratched himself all over. The straw stuck to him like so many arrows. 
Carlos slipped on his canvas jacket. Clay dust floated like a cloud around him, sparkling in the beams of morning sun. He flung the door open and the pigs rushed outside. He followed at a much more languid pace. He knew the pigs would impatiently wait for him at the feeding trough. Carlos walked around the corner of the house. He opened the small shed and dragged out a burlap bag full of feed. The bag weighed more than him. He leveraged it up and onto a wooden wheelbarrow. He sat down to wake up more and pluck the straw from his hair. He could hear the radio from his grandmother's window above. He could only make out that it was the news. No one he knew spoke such perfect Spanish like the man on the radio. He liked the way the Spanish sounded. He imagined that it was the way the king spoke. He was daydreaming about being the king when his grandmother called to him. He jumped up and stared at the window. She was not a grandmother to be trifled with, and everyone in the neighborhood knew she was no fool. She appeared at the window with her hair pulled behind her head in a bun. Here, catch this, she said in a gentle voice. Carlos loved her very much. He caught the white napkin as it floated down in the thick morning air. Wrapped inside was a piece of bread and ham. She came back to the window. Wash up after you feed the children. Then come straight back here. We have someone to see this morning. She disappeared. Carlos took a bite of the ham. He tore a piece of the bread and stuffed both into his mouth. He shoved the napkin into his pocket. He spit on his hands. They were still rough and sore from yesterday's work at the factory. He, the spit made the clay on his hands turn into a pottery-like slime. He lifted to two handles and pushed with all his might. The wheelbarrow moved down the alley and into the street. Carlos smiled to himself. He was proud to be a wheelbarrow driver. Triana is a dusty, dark place in old Seville. It is old Gitano or Gypsy Quarter. Tight little streets with people rushing to work and some back from work. Carlos knew everyone, or at least everyone knew him. His grandmother kept an eye out with other grandmothers. They had a well-established network dating back to a time when they were in school. So even though Carlos walked down the street where thugs and perverts roamed, not one would bother him for fear of the wrath of the grandmothers. Everyone was kind to him. Artists would ask him to pose while they painted his picture. Carlos was a handsome boy with strong black eyes, soft curly hair that was so dark it seemed blue. And under the gray clay dust, he had a dark coffee-colored skin, like many Andalusian people with Moorish descent. He stopped to rub his sore hands. He could see the children, his grandmother called the pigs her children, waiting for him down the street in a little field next to the factory. His grandmother owned this little plot of land. It was her prized possession. Suddenly, the wooden door to Juan's writer's house burst open. 
Juan rushed past Carlos without seeing Buenos Dias. He carried a pack, an old shotgun. His girlfriend, Thelia, cried and called after him. Her nightdress slipped down low off her milky white shoulders. Carlos stared, dazzled and confused. She was beautiful. Juan was an ass. Just two days ago, they poured Carlos a glass of cold tea with sugar. Carlos found it exotic and tasty. His grandmother restricted his sugar. She said that sugar would rot his teeth. No man wants to be a toothless man. Thelia cried. Carlos didn't know what to do. Should he console her? Did he know her well enough? His eyes locked on her naked shoulders and something stirred in him. Thelia realized Carlos was staring. She quickly gathered herself. She pulled her nightdress over her shoulder. She smiled reflexively at Carlos's innocence. She knew men. Eight or eighty, they're all the same dogs. She bent down and kissed Carlos on the forehead. Honey, she whispered, life will be very hard for you. I pity you and honor you. I will light candles because your innocence will disappear forever. And this is a sad thing. What about Juan? Carlos asked. He thought he was being polite. Juan? She stepped back from Carlos and studied him. Carlos studied her shoes. She was an almost famous flamingo dancer. She fixed her eyes on him. The stern, prideful, sad expression that flamingo dancers wear when they reach the climax of the dance fell over his face like a summer cloud racing across the sun. Inside, Carlos's heart skipped a beat. She said, Juan is an idealist. It is good to be an idealist. Do you know why I'm crying for him? Carlos choked out the word, no. Because idealists die young. She wiped a tear from her eye. Then why be an idealist? asked Carlos. Without idealism, there is no light. We would live in darkness. There would be no flamingo. Her tone became more jocular, even as though she was heartbroken. Flamingo needs bright, happy people to be powerful for contrast. You are too young to understand, although I wish you could. You're a beautiful little boy. She brushed his forelock to the side and sighed. Her own history burst across her mind. The children had grown impatient and were squealing with displeasure. Go, your pigs are calling. I will come see your grandmother later. Tell her I said, good luck. Carlos didn't understand. He promised he would deliver the message. He filled the trough with feed. He shut the rickety wooden gate behind him. In, in the time it took Carlos to feed and water the children, the streets filled with young men of Tirana. They carried packs, rifles, flintlock pistols so old, even an eight-year-old knew they were no good. Some men carried bread and hams wrapped in newspaper, yesterday's news. National fever and division filled the air. Revolution. At the corner down the street, men argued. Two men threw wild punches at each other, neither landing. 
but causing them to fall down where they wrestled in the gray dust of the tile factory. Brothers fought brothers. Mothers disowned sons. Fathers cried over the loss of daughters. Uncles abandoned nephews. Fathers locked doors. Mothers wept. Grandmothers sighed with resignation because they had seen the madness coming and they had to make decisions. Carlos returned home. The chaos in the street upset him. From his experience, an eight-year-old experience, something was wrong. A normal day saw men leave their homes, lock the door behind them, wave to their wives on the balcony and join the other men walking toward the tile factory. The tall smokestack would belch black soot croaking away as the fire attendants cleaned the ovens. They stacked wood and coal into trays under the ovens. They poured fire on the wood with burning kerosene from tin cans with long nozzles. Everyone, everyone wore their work clothes. The mixers were splattered with gray mud from the river. Their arms were big and muscular from shoveling, stirring, and packing the wet mud into molds. The glaziers wore thick aprons splattered with magical glazes that would not reveal themselves until forced by the glowing ovens into brilliant and destined design and color. The painters carried large wooden boxes with their brushes, rollers, cut-off wires, felting knives, ribbon tools, and wooden molding spoons. Today, the men moved away from the factory. They amassed on the road leading toward the center of Seville. The wives had dressed quickly, swathed their babies, and rushed after their husbands. Carlos walked into his grandmother's house. He left his dusty boots next to the door. His boots told his work story. He carried stacks of tiles after they cooled on the racks and put them into boxes for shipping. He earned one peseta a week. The factory boss paid the money directly to his grandmother who broke down the peseta into smaller portions. Part would go into her purse in the sock drawer, part would go into the jar in the kitchen, and part would go into the pocket of Carlos's good Sunday coat. Carlos loved going to church, so he could feel the jingle of the pesetas in his pocket. When the offering plate was being passed, he asked his mother how much should he give. His mother was wiser than most. She told him God would decide what we needed. Sometimes he will need all the pesetas, and sometimes not so much. He will guide your hand. Carlos reached into his pocket. He felt the coins. They were warm on one side and cool on the other. He counted what was God going to do? He waited. The offering plate came to the end of his pew. He and his grandmother sat in the middle of the pew. This is where her mother and her grandmother sat. It was a good place to listen to God. It was, in fact, the best place in the whole basilica for God to hear your prayers. His grandmother said it 
was a fact proven over generations. Carlos gripped the coins. He waited. The offering plate came nearer. His grandmother took the plate and dropped an envelope into the plate. The plate was right in front of him. It was right under his nose. He could see the envelopes with money in them, coins and bills. Where was God? In a panic, he tossed all the coins in his sweaty hand into the offering plate with a clang. The plate disappeared down the pew. He crossed himself. He looked up at his grandmother, who was deep in prayer. He checked his pocket. There were still some coins deep in the crease. God had truly taken what was needed. Carlos took off his canvas coat. His grandmother wore her best dress. The dress had orchids printed across the fabric. She was stylish. Her maroon hat with a pheasant feather sat on the table. With a damp cloth, she washed behind his ears. She dug into his ears. She inspected his fingernails. She took a kitchen knife from the drawer and dug out the gray clay. When she was satisfied with his hands, his face, his neck, she brushed his hair. The hair would have to be cut, but not today. Carlos asked, where are we going? We will see a man about your future. She poured him a glass of milk. Here, drink. You will grow up big and strong. You will be a very handsome man, but handsome doesn't carry you too far. You need to be smart and have a good, solid trade. Why do idealists die young? He asked with a mustache of milk covering his upper lip. His grandmother turned, and with one ferocious glance, one that could stop a cavalry charge in their tracks, but for the innocent black eyes looking up at her and that silly white mustache, she gathered herself and asked, Why do you ask? I heard Thelia say it. Juan just left her. She will call on you this afternoon. And she said, good luck. He did his duty, drank his milk, finished his bread and ham. His grandmother fixed her hat onto her head with bobby pins. She looked at herself in the mirror. She was still a very fine woman. She was still young, or at least that is what she told herself. The skin under her jawline was as smooth as a teenager. Her skin, although paler than Carlos's skin, was olive. She could see the lines around her eyes, tiny lines, not quite crow's feet, but lines just the same. She brushed powder over her face. Better to cover all than to leave the contrasting patch. No, she argued with herself, it wasn't her body that showed her age. She was still supple and lithe from her youthful ballerina days. She still had sexual desires. She had an appetite for life. Her age, she thought, was in her eyes. Her eyes told a long and difficult story. She was born Carolina Garcia Guerrero, daughter of a prosperous leather merchant and a regionally famous painter. Her father adored her. Her mother was often taken to bed. She managed to produce paintings that found their way into local galleries and even into Madrid. 
Locally, she was his celebrity, but to Katerina, she was the bell ringer. This was a little joke between mother and daughter. Her mother was sickly. Scarlet fever had struck her down when she was young. She was physically delicate. Her father waited on her hand and foot. He hired servants to wait on her when he traveled. Katerina sat in bed with her mother and took her meals like a princess. Katerina grew up receiving a liberal education from a priest who had studied in Paris. She read books, danced, and played piano. When she was 15, her father brought home a young ship captain to meet Katerina. He enamored her with his sea stories. He was tall, very tan and strong. He told her stories of exotic ports. He explained how to move his ship in and out of the most difficult situations, bad weather, surly crew, or corrupt port captains. In an instant, her world opened wider than she could believe. They married not long after meeting and had a son within the prerequisite time. She had Alberto, Carlos's father. If life stopped right at that moment, she would be different. But life doesn't stop. Life intruded and began writing the story that her eyes told with great power and articulation. Her husband and her father left on a voyage to Colombia. They were lost at sea. Her mother became despondent until her death when her son, Alberto, turned 18. Economic struggles marred her life. Without her father, money became scarce. She took a job in the factory as a glazier. She was skilled as an artist as well. The factory bosses actually valued her skill. She sent Alberto to the University of Madrid to study law. She was very proud of Alberto. She really felt they had a future. Then tragedy struck. A yellow fever epidemic struck the capital. Alberto died in his sleep. He left an unfinished letter to his mother. She received the letter from a dark young woman. Her name was Sophia. In her arms was a baby. She handed the baby and the letter to Katerina. Katerina invited her in to take some food and refreshment, but Sophia declined. Katerina looked down into the swaddling and found the bright face of Carlos gazing up at her. She recognized her son, Alberto. She looked up and Sophia disappeared. Months later, Sophia was found on a shore near Punta Tarif. They said, this is a rumor only, that she went mad with despair and attempted to swim to Morocco where her cousins lived. But she didn't make it. All this history and all this tragedy projected from the inner eye, the inner eye anyone who could dare glaze into would know she had some kind of life. Only Carlos looked into her eyes, a place he felt loved and comfortable, and herself, whose life played like a diorama as she applied a touch of rouge. 
Come on, she commanded. Clean your face. She brushed the crumbs from his lips. Eat, you eat like the children. She picked up his jacket and shook it with a snap. It was dusty. Katerina and Carlos walked down the street. The street was full of people. Some called for revolution. Others called for calm. Arguments boiled over. Blood was spilt on the street. They boarded a bus that took them across the river. The bus driver had to stop twice because of the crowds. People in the street banged their hands on the side of the bus. It amazed Carlos. They got off at the last stop at Tomares. The bus driver told Katerina if they returned in two hours, he would go back to the city. Otherwise, the next bus wouldn't come until sundown. If then, with all the talk of war, Katerina thanked him. She assured him she would be back within an hour. walked down a long, dusty road. Occasionally, military trucks would barrel past them, heading for the city. Carlos thought this would be a great adventure. They turned off the road and walked toward a large building set in the middle of a field of wheat. The building was old, probably built by the Moors. Walking down the pebbled path, Carlos could sense an awe growing in him. The gardens were perfect. Box bushes lined the path. The path veered off into various gardens with tall, wispy willow trees, their arms swaying in the wind. A black American Cadillac glistened in the noonday sun. Katerina pulled the doorbell. They decorated the archway with an intricate blue and white tile. Carlos recognized the design. He looked up at his grandmother and smiled. It was her work. The door opened. A man in a fez answered with a quiet nod. Katerina walked in with her head held high. Carlos followed. The man in the fez looked around outside before shutting the door to see maybe if they were followed. Carlos followed his grandmother into the courtyard at the center of his this massive hacienda. The courtyard was under construction, and off on one side, under the sill of the roof, a man dressed in a white cotton shirt and gabardine slacks with no shoes sat sipping tea. The moment he saw Katerina, he jumped up and introduced himself. Mr. Perkins was an American painter and writer. This was his house. He had a admired the tile in the house and asked who the artist was. And after some inquiries, he learned it, it was a factory worker, Caterina Garcia, Garcia Guerrero. Caterina blushed. Her blush surprised Carlos. Grandmothers don't blush. So he thought, Carlos seemed left out of the conversation and Mr. Perkins shook his hand then quickly went back to doting on his grandmother. Was this man flirting with his grandmother? What was going on? 
panic set into his being. Even when the man wearing the fez offered him a glass of tea with a stick of cinnamon sugar, and his grandmother approved, it didn't settle him down. He reached into his pocket and remembered he didn't have his church coat on, so there was nothing to hang on to in his pocket, except for breadcrumbs. He longed for his seat in the church, so God could show him everything was okay. Would he show him here, here in this beautiful place, surrounded by his grandmother's art and a man who found her attractive as a woman? He sipped his tea. It was very good. It distracted him for a moment, but his eyes wandered back to the center of the courtyard. The cement floor laid bare. They removed the fountain. The space was open and clean, except for the hammers and brooms and dustpans. His grandmother and Mr. Perkins sat in the shade and talked. She unveiled a short story of herself. Carlos heard the details, but if it wasn't coming out of her mouth, he would have never attributed the story to her. She was his grandmother, and that was the only story he would accept. Carlos wandered to the center of the courtyard. He turned around 360 degrees. The colors and the designs of the tiles leapt out at him. They twisted, bracketed, grouped, spun, blended. His eye penetrated the complexity of the lines and colors until he clearly saw the unifying concept. He felt the emotion of the place. He understood completely why his grandmother was there. He walked over and stood next to his grandmother, and she was talking intensely to Mr. Perkins almost like a schoolgirl. She was completely absorbed. Carlos pulled on her sleeve. She didn't respond. He had seen her absorbed before, so he didn't press the situation. Instead, he went over to the table with drawing papers and pencils. Mr. Perkins looked up and nodded his approval. Carlos took the paper and the pencil and went back to the center of the courtyard where he began drawing what he saw in his inner eye. The sun crossed. The shade covered the courtyard. They had already missed the bus. Katerina and Mr. Perkins came over to Carlos. They were feeling guilty about forgetting the young man. Carlos stood up and presented his drawing. Mr. Perkins and his grandmother studied the picture. Mr. Perkins looked at Carlos with deep admiration. This is genius. You are an extremely talented young man. His grandmother said, Carlos, you make me so happy. Did you see this before? He stammered, I saw it inside, and he pointed to his head. Mr. Perkins turned to his grandmother. Why don't you and Carlos stay here? There's plenty of room. He is a natural talent, and I would like to help him develop that talent. With everything going on in the city, maybe it is best if he stays here. I have responsibilities, she said. Mr. Perkins moved closer to Katerina. I can take care of any bills. I would like to. I have other children to feed. I, I will come visit, but, but first I must return to the city. We'll, we'll be back tomorrow. Mr. Perkins suggested we bring the other children. Carlos and Katerina laughed. The man wearing the fez opened the door to the Cadillac. Katerina and Carlos 
climbed into the back seat. Carlos was thrilled. He had never ridden in a car before. He listed to the man wearing the fez that he had ridden in a bus on a trolley and once a four-horse carriage, but he was too young to remember. His grandmother patted him on the knee. This was her indicator for him to be calm. When his grandmother would tell him something important, she made doubly sure he was calm and listening. She didn't like to repeat herself. As they crossed the bridge, they could see the bus burning. The conductor was sitting inert in his seat, looking up at the ceiling. Bullet holes marked the windshield. Carlos saw the body. He saw the burning bus. Katerina turned his head away and muttered, Don't look. The Cadillac stopped at the checkpoint just outside Tirana. The soldiers told the man in the fez to turn around and go home. Katerina wanted to get out and walk. We're close enough, she proclaimed. For the first time, the man in the fez spoke. It is better if we find a quieter place. I will wait for you across the bridge tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Katerina didn't answer. They drove back along the river. The man in the fez pulled over, and Katerina and Carlos got out. They slipped into the shadows on the edge of the old gypsy quarter. With his feet on the ground in his neighborhood, Carlos led his grandmother down the streets and through the alleys, as familiar to him as the back of his hand. They came to the market and stopped dead in horror. Katerina pulled Carlos back into the shadows. What they saw would never leave them in their lives. Soldiers lining women and children up against the bakery and shooting them. Anyone who accidentally entered the market square was similarly shot. The blood filled the gutters. An officer riding a horse waved his sword above his head and screamed orders. Kill them! Kill them all! Katerina and Carlos stayed in the shadow and retreated. Carlos guided Katerina around the market toward the factory. She lost her bearings. Carlos had played hide-and-seek in these very streets and knew better than anyone how to sneak around the gypsy quarter. After several turns and sudden stops because of the murderous rampaging of the soldiers, they came out to the little patch of land the children loved so much. The pen was empty. Blood wetted the straw. The children were dead. Katerina was saddened and infuriated at the same time. She marched down the center of the street with her hat in her hand. She would kill the thief and murderer with her bare hands. Luckily, the street in the front of the house was empty. No soldiers or residents. Front doors all smashed and splintered, windows broken, and the body of Senor Gomez, the butcher, lay dead in the street his eyes open in an expression of profound surprise. She stopped. The grief silenced her anger for the moment. Carlos stared at the butcher. Katerina grabbed him hard and dragged him into the house. Inside, tables and chairs were knocked over. Clothes lay on the floor. The pantry was empty. The hams were gone. Katerina ordered him to gather his things. We can't stay here. Carlos went 
to the closet and pulled down his good jacket. The money was still in his pockets. He heard his grandmother gasp and squeal with fright. She laughed. He rushed into the kitchen to see his grandmother hugging Celia. Both were crying. At that moment, the shock of everything he had seen rushed up into his throat and burst into tears, unleashing all the fear and sorrow of every moment of his life. The women took him into their arms, and they sobbed until their tears ran dry. The soldiers rampaged through the gypsy quarter, killing everyone in their path, especially gypsies. Thelia hid in the shed with the children's feed. They would have raped her and killed her. They came looking for Juan and anyone associated with the revolution. She told Katerina and Carlos they took the pigs and anything of value. She came upstairs after they left. Katerina collected her clothes. Celia had a small bag. She helped Carlos get ready. They sat in the dark. Katerina held Carlos in her arms while he slept. When she dozed off, she dreamt of escaping to Mr. Perkins' arms. She found it odd that she was dreaming of a sexual liaison with a dashing American while she was still in so much jeopardy. The power of the dream drew her deeper, warmer, more tactilely into the warmth of her body. She jumped out of the dream at once when she heard the front door close. She was in her bed. Celia was next to her. Carlos walked in with eggs and ham and a loaf of bread. Where did you get those? God left a peseta in my pocket. I thought he wouldn't mind. Come here. She extended her arms and drew him into her bosom. You are one special young man. I will cook us some breakfast. Carlos told Thea and Katerina that the soldiers were protecting the bridge. We will have to go down across the river by raft, and he knew the exact spot. Thea looked at Katerina and said, He is quite a good man. I wish I could find one half as handsome. Carlos remembered what his grandmother said about being handsome. He wasn't falling into that trap. He asked his grandmother what would happen with Mr. Perkins. Honestly, I don't know. She flipped the eggs and slid the pan to the side. A long time ago, I wanted to be an artist who made big designs on tile. I became very good at making glazes, but the factory boss kept me in the glaze department. Mr. Perkins is an artist, a well-renowned artist, and he contacted me about making some new designs. I told him I would if he would take you on as an apprentice. Carlos scratched his chin. Celia almost burst into laughter. Katerina asked him what he was doing. I see men, when they are thinking, rub their chin whiskers. I thought it might help me think. Katerina and Celia burst into laughter. Someone yelled out the window, Be quiet, or they will come back for you. Celia slipped the eggs into the bread. We should go. They will come back. They slipped out the front door, just as the morning gray pushed the darkness into the alleys. Katerina touched the door once more and walked away following Carlos. Carlos led them through the factory, now that it was idle. Not even a watchman were around. They slipped under the chained gate 
and walked towards the river's edge. Carlos asked his grandmother, Were you going to leave me there forever? Katerina stopped in her tracks. No. Her directness pushed Carlos back a step. We're going to be there together. I'm never going to leave you. If anything happens, you will probably leave me. If that does happen, you keep going, and don't you dare look back. Her eyes welled with tears. They passed the barges moored against the riverbank. Across the river, they could see people moving about. Some people were carrying all their belongings. Military trucks sped past. Off in the distance, gunfire, cries of loss pierced the air. Among the sounds of the desperate madness of gripping the city, Carlos could hear the wheat finch chirping in the brush. A fish leapt out of the water and splashed down with its catch. This life, thought Carlos, would continue. It reassured him. Thelia leaned over to Carlos and said, Are you sure of this? Carlos looked up at her. His eyes automatically looked at her cleavage. Yes, he turned his head very quickly and looked at his grandmother. He didn't understand what was going on in his mind or body, but he knew the world would not end. At a bend in the river, Carlos pulled a homemade raft out from underneath the bushes. He put his hands on his hips and smiled. They dragged the raft down the muddy bank into the water. They boarded the raft and rowed across the river in a few precious and dangerous minutes. They clambered up the embankment. When the coast was clear, they started to walk casually down the street towards the bridge, where they would meet the man in the fez. A little way in the distance, there was a checkpoint. Soldiers were pushing people around. An officer shot a man as he tried to run. An old man pleaded for mercy. The officer shot him without hesitation. It was madness. Katrina guided Carlos and Thelia down the small street off the main road. Thelia and Katerina discussed their options. Carlos looked out for the soldiers. Thelia said, maybe we should just walk through the city to your friend's house. It's a long way. We wouldn't get there until after dark. For a moment they thought. Katerina turned around. Where's Carlos? Carlos pulled a Spanish flag out of a flower box along the main road and walked toward the checkpoint. He cheered the soldiers. He asked lots of questions about their guns and trucks. They quickly tired of him and sent him away. Thelia asked, peering around the corner, What was that about? What the hell is he doing? I will box his ears. Carlos walked past the dead old man. There were other bodies lying next to the river wall that he couldn't see for the army trucks. He saw one shoe in the grass next to the, an empty pack of cigarettes. This saddened him greatly beyond his comprehension. He walked a block. Parked in the alley was the Cadillac and the man who wore the fez. He knocked on the window. Where's your grandmother? Drive, I will show you. In a few minutes, they drove down the street, and Carlos called out to his grandmother and Thelia. They jumped in the back seat, and the man who wore the fez told them to lie down on the seat. 
Carlos sat in the front seat, with his arm out the window, waving the flag. They took a few turns, and they were on their way down the highway. Katerina slapped Carlos in the head several times. Never do that again. Do you hear me? You scared me to death. Carlos cried. He dropped the flag in the road. Carlos had recovered from his little tears by the time they arrived at the hacienda. Thelia was afraid. She had never been in such a nice place. Katerina took Carlos by the hand and led him into the hacienda. Mr. Perkins waited for them in a small living room on the west side. The fire blazed away as Katerina made introductions. The first order of business was to get Carlos fed and in bed. The man who wore the fez disappeared into the kitchen, only to emerge with sandwiches and a piece of chocolate cake. He took Carlos to his bedroom. Carlos was hungry. When he finished eating, he washed himself. Taking a bath in such a grand room was, in Carlos's mind, the life of a king. His grandmother came in and dried him. She put on fresh pajamas. His eyes barely open. She apologized for being angry with him. She shouldn't have boxed his ears. He was sound asleep before she finished. She laid him down on the cool, clean sheets and covered him. The night would be cool. She lit the night candle, and she could hear the moaning in his sleep. She murmured a prayer, asking God to spare Carlos. She crossed herself and shut the door. The flame of the candle on the nightstand quivered. In the days and weeks, even months, the hacienda served as a sanctuary for Thelia, the flamingo dancer, Katerina, the grandmother and glazier, and Carlos, the eight-year-old design savant. Mr. Perkins spent the daylight hours in his studio painting. Sometimes Carlos would sit with him. Mostly he would educate Carlos on the principles of design and color. Carlos was grateful for this education. His grandmother felt indebted for everything. She was an, an independent woman. She kept her own accounts, and although eternally thankful for the safety, the work, and the education, she bristled over the imbalance of the account with Mr. Perkins. She found him attractive. She thought he found her attractive. Why hasn't he taken me to bed? She was ready. A night of passion would balance the account in a certain column. The account balance of age and youth would be served even with a flirt. She tended the fire of the kiln. She fired the tiles that would go into the courtyard. The man in the fez set up tables next to the kiln and erected a tarp over them so the sudden wouldn't burn them. This was Andalusia, after all and hot and dry was the way of the summer. Carlos's designs were unique and complex in many ways. His sophistication astounded Mr. Perkins and Katerina. Carlos explained in some detail his thoughts. 
But Mr. Perkins and his grandmother Katerina listened to an eight-year-old who sounded more educated and experienced than most adults. After a short while, Carlos would revert to a boy and play with his ball in the garden. He would have wild flights of fantasy about the rows of box trees. He absorbed the intense fuchsia of the bougainvillea. He climbed a lovely curved palm tree. He would sit in the bend and look out at the fields. Several months passed. The routine of life smoothed Carlos's conscience. He slept better now. Bad dreams had passed. This new life agreed with him. He loved his grandmother even more, if that was possible. He loved Thelia deeply, but differently. At night, around the fire, Mr. Perkins would play guitar. Very poorly, I might add. And Thelia would dance flamingo. She would sing beautiful songs that touched their hearts. During the day, she helped with the cooking, cleaning, and tile-making. Sometimes she would sit for Mr. Perkins. Mr. Perkins wanted to paint her nude. She had a beautiful body. Thelia said an emphatic no. Her respect for Katerina was absolute. She would not jeopardize their relationship. She owed her life to Katerina. Carlos took to calling Thelia auntie, and this reinforced her sisterhood with Katerina. Mr. Perkins was a gentleman first and foremost. Katerina and Thelia were very careful to establish the lines of decorum. Occasionally, after Carlos went to bed, they drank too much wine. Innocent flirting would happen. Sometimes they danced to a record player a little closer than was wise. It was at these moments that Thelia and Katerina would share looks. Thelia although sexually vibrant, would push Katerina and Mr. Perkins together. Katerina wanted nothing more than to dive into his masculine embrace, yet she resisted. Life in the hacienda remained in a quasi-state of work and desire for two years. The courtyard was finished and declared a beautiful work of art. Carlos, Katerina, and Thelia had their names on the keystone tile that attributed the creators. Carlos took to painting murals on the barren walls of the unused rooms. He painted fantastical scenes of animals flying around the verdant field. This was what he saw in his mind when he wondered about the garden. The man who wore the fez took pictures of Carlos's work. The camera was a new Leica. Mr. Perkins bought the camera for him for a birthday present. Thelia made a cake. They danced around the courtyard, and the man who wore the fez took pictures. He was joyful. At that moment, the man who wore the fez collapsed in a pile of arms and legs. His fez fell off his head, revealing the Star of David. Someone had branded the Star of David on the top of his head. Mr. Perkins rushed to his aid. The man who wore the fez was dead. They all wept together, covering the courtyard in tears, as if a heavy rain had come. Seville 
had a small Jewish community. They hid in fear of persecution. Hate destroyed many families. The community feared a purge. Mr. Perkins drove into Seville with Carlos. There were several long discussions and raised voices about Caterina and Celia going. It was too dangerous. Being a gypsy flamingo dancer was a death sentence. Caterina's status was much murkier. They couldn't take a chance. Carlos, on the other hand, knew the gypsy quarter and was by all accounts fearless. Mr. Perkins was an American and legally considered neutral. Caterina and Thelia held each other tight and waved to Mr. Perkins and Carlos as they drove down the long pebble driveway. Caterina pulled Thelia closer. Thank you. For what? For loving Carlos and not complicating things. Thelia kissed her on the cheek. You're like the older sister I never had. I would never go with him for just a fling. I wasn't speaking about that. Katerina, of course you were. You were about to explode with sex. Katerina stepped back and lowered her eyes to the ground, embarrassed. Thelia continued, I am grateful for Mr. Perkins. This place has saved our lives. You have saved my life. I owe you a debt of gratitude. And you know I love Carlos like I would love my own son. Katerina studied Thelia carefully and said, You want to go? No. Yes. Eventually. Can you blame me? Mr. Perkins is yours if you want him. Why doesn't he act? Men don't know what they want. They just want. He is certainly a gentleman, but he wants us both and doesn't want to offend either one of us. So I will make plans to leave. No, cried Katerina. If you want him, you can have him. I don't want him. It's plain and simple. I don't know what or who I want, except I want your happiness and that little boy to become a man. This is the first time Carlos was in the car with Mr. Perkins driving. The act seemed strange. The man who wore the fez always drove. It is strange you're driving the car, said Carlos over the wind from the open windows. I know. Long pause. Long pauses by adults mesmerized him. He incorporated them into his own dialogue, more as a irritating game than anything else. His mind was quick, and he was naturally impatient. Pauses were a nuisance. The city had checkpoints all around. Mr. Perkins flashed his passport, and they let him through. One checkpoint, the soldier, a teenager, recognized Carlos. Are you the one with the pigs in the gypsy quarter? Carlos carefully studied the soldier. The soldier leaned against the car. Carlos paused. He knew the kid. He was older by five years. His father was a mixer in the tile factory and his mother a painter of pottery in the same factory. Francisco, how nice to see you. You look older in your uniform. What kind of gun did they give you? You're so lucky. Francisco's chest puffed out. It's a French carbine. Don't tell anyone but I don't have bullets. 
Oh. There was some yelling from behind the car, and Francisco said, They're okay. Let them through. And he st stuck his head in the car. Bye, Carlos. Don't go near the Moors. They're murderous. Thanks. Be safe. They shook hands. The Cadillac moved forward into the quiet streets of Seville. They parked the car on a side street near the Grand Cathedral and walked into the Barrio de St. Bartomeli. Carlos guided Mr. Perkins to the gate. This is where they go inside. Carlos pointed to the black wrought iron gate. What's the matter, Carlos? You look uncomfortable. I never met a Jew close up. Why, do they scare you? I heard stories. And these stories, what do they say? What happens to little boys who form their opinions without knowing the facts? They show ignorance to the world and to God because God created all men equal, even Jews. Are you still apprehensive? When you say you never met a Jew close up, did you not consider our errand? Yes, but he was the man who wore the fez. And I think of him differently. He was a different kind of man. He was a very different kind of Jew. He was an Ethiopian Jew from Africa, but still a Jew. Carlos, Carlos's feelings turned upside down and fell upon the street like dancing animals from, the, from deep in the earth. He had repeated bad things about Jews when he was younger. He felt terrible. The man who wore the fez was his friend. He loved him dearly. He was risking his life to find other Jews so that, they gave, so that they could properly bury him. He was on the verge of an epiphany when an old man with a long gray beard wearing a skull cap asked Mr. Perkins what he wanted. Mr. Perkins spoke to him in a language Carlos had never heard. They were led in and led down several small alleys and up a set of wooden stairs into a small room with men wearing the same long beards and skull caps. Mr. Perkins explained the situation, or so Carlos surmised. The men looked at one another and nodded no. Mr. Perkins pleaded with them. Carlos, who was, as far as all the men in the room were concerned, was non-existent, maybe invisible, and maybe he was invisible to himself until he touched the peseta deep in his pocket. He took the coin between his forefinger and thumb. He rubbed the coin. He didn't feel as though he needed to possess this coin, but he felt he needed to act. He walked into the center of the room, a small table in the middle of the room had a cigarette ashtray, coffee cups, empty bottles of water on it. He set the coin on the table and said, My friend has died. God is waiting for him. Please help him get home. The room was quiet for some time. Carlos left. The men thought and prayed. Mr. Perkins closed the iron gate behind him. Carlos waited for him in the alley. Mr. Perkins jerked his head, let's go home. They won't help, they didn't say, which is like saying no. I think they feel it is too dangerous for them. 
God won't see it that way, said Carlos. The rains came. The rivers swelled. A cold wind blew across the Iberian Peninsula. Carlos, Caterina, Delia, and Mr. Perkins buried the men who wore the fez in the middle of the garden. Carlos made a large tile with the Star of David and his fez in the middle for the headstone. Mr. Perkins stopped painting. He was sad all the time. He started drinking in the morning. Being winter, the garden slept. Katerina worried. She worried about what could happen to them if Mr. Perkins left them. What if he asked them to leave? The Civil War had mostly passed them by with little interaction. They often heard planes flying overhead, cannon firing off in the distance. A stray soldier, tired and lost, staggered by. They offered a meal and a dry place to sleep in the barn. Thelia generally handled that. She cautiously directed them to the barn. She would leave a bucket with soup and bread outside the door with instructions to leave in the morning. She found the bucket cleaned and rinsed on the kitchen stoop. This evening after Carlos was in bed and Katerina was sitting with Mr. Perkins, Thelia heard a tap at the kitchen window. The light taps on the window interrupted her daydream. She was making love with Juan while she washed the dinner plates. She looked through the window into the darkness, and Juan's face appeared. She thought it was an apparition. He looked like Juan, but older and more tired than she remembered. Celia! She snapped out of it and ran to the kitchen door. She flung the door open with such force that Katerina and Mr. Perkins jumped up and ran to her rescue. She leaped into Juan's arms and knocked him to the ground. She kissed and kissed him until he, was, he pushed her away with his one good arm. His right arm carried a bullet. Mr. Perkins offered Juan a cigarette. He lit it for him. Thelia had stripped off his heavy field coat and shirt. Katerina boiled water and pulled out the sharpest of knives. In the chaos, no one saw Carlos standing in the kitchen doorway. His eyes were full of sleep. Juan looked up when the pain became too great and saw Carlos staring at him. Hey, Carlos, you've grown. Carlos shook his head in disgust. You didn't say goodbye. He turned around and left the kitchen before Juan realized what he was talking about. In the next few days, the rain cleared. Juan told them about the battles. The Germans and the Italians were supporting Franco. The losses were near a million men and women. Women had been fighting side by side and dying. His unit was by the coast. The Republicans had moved in mercenaries who slaughtered and raped their way up to Seville. His sister unit headed for Madrid, but bogged down outside Granada. Thilia, who beamed that her man was back with her, asked, Where... Where were you going if your unit was by the coast? Juan's mood became very dark. I am the only one left. I thought of rejoining our sister unit, but the roads are blocked and the fields patrolled. I came around the south of Seville, hoping to find some other unit. Mr. Perkins spoke up for the first time. How were you injured? 
I stopped by a farm and asked for a drink. The farmer shot me without saying a word. Mr. Perkins thought for a second before speaking. Few people come out here, but they do come occasionally. You hide when they do. Don't go out. You can be seen from across the fields. From the information you have given, I think we are no longer safe here. Katerina said firmly, Where do you propose we go? Should we go back to the gypsy quarter to be raped and slaughtered like my children? Or should we dash to the coast and wave down a passenger liner passing by? Here we are. We have no papers. I have a nine-year-old boy. What should we do? Tell me, Mr. Perkins. Carlos had never seen his grandmother act so harsh with Mr. Perkins. He thought one day he might be his grandfather. This experience of being sharply grilled was uncomfortable for Mr. Perkins. Yet he recovered. I will go into the city and arrange for papers for all of you. Juan, would you have a record of you joining the opposition? Yes, they know me all too well. I am to be shot on sight. My writings against fascism have received wide acclaim. And if I may ask, Mr. Perkins, where, where do your loyalties lie? His back stiffened. The gloom that followed him from the death of his friend lifted, and Carlos saw him get taller. He was more imposing. Juan waited, not sure of what was coming. My loyalties lie with the people. They support beauty, not war. They are neither right or left, up or down. I'm not a particularly religious man, but I am a Jew. By virtue or curse, my birth cast me with an important tribe. I see the hate of the world directed at us. If it wasn't for the sudden death of my friend, I would have asked Katerina to marry me, and I would adopt Carlos as my own. This is where my loyalties lie. Katerina lost her breath for a moment. Thelia beamed with happiness. Katerina, what will you say? He hasn't asked me anything. Mr. Perkins went to his knee. Katerina, would you marry me? Katerina blushed. She was about to speak when Juan jumped up and pushed Mr. Perkins to the floor. He yelled, You must not marry. You must all run. They are coming for you. I lied. I'm a coward. I ran. I was captured. I was sent here to find the gypsy and the Jew. You must run. They're coming for you now. God forgive me. I don't know. What? I don't know. God forgive me. The brakes of the army truck squealed to a stop. Soldiers ran in all directions. A battering ram pounded the front door. Mr. Perkins stood up and grabbed Katerina, whose eyes were red from anger and fear. Katerina, take the boy to France, to Bordeaux, in the basement, behind the old barrel, are papers and money. Take them. Hide in the barrel. Go, go. Windows broke. A grenade came into his office and exploded. Celia clawed at Juan's face like a wild cat, Katerina grabbed her arm. Leave him. They will kill him. Save yourself. Come. Carlos ran down to the cellar before everyone. He opened the secret door to the barrel. 
He had found it a long time ago by accident. He was sure they would be safe. Katerina dragged a livid Thelia down to the basement. She flung her like a rag doll into the barrel. Katerina followed, then Carlos. He shut the secret door. He lit a match. Katerina wanted to question him impulsively about where did he get the matches. But she didn't. In the bottom of the barrel was another door and a ladder that took them deeper under the hacienda. Carlos burned his fingers. The flame went out. He lit another match. Caterina and Celia climbed down the ladder. Carlos followed. He used all his strength to pull the heavy cover over the hatchway. Mr. Perkins reached the drawer in the tall dining cabinet and pulled out a pistol. Juan held his eye. He bawled and screamed the most terrifying, curdling scream. Mr. Perkins shot him dead. The door burst open. The army captain stepped in with his pistol in his hand. Are you the American Jew, Abraham Perkins? I am. The captain shot him without comment or time for retort. Mr. Perkins let himself down slowly onto the floor of the courtyard. The beauty of the tiles the exquisite design, the love of Katerina, Carlos, and Celia folded over him as he succumbed to darkness. For the first time in his life, he understood God. Celia and Katerina held each other in the darkness. Carlos lit another match. Come, follow me. Carlos led them down a long tunnel. He would light a match every 20 meters or so. They were quiet. They couldn't hear anything from above. Finally, after what seemed like hours of stumbling in the dark, they came to the end of the tunnel. Where are we, Carlos? The old spring house. Carlos climbed the ladder first. He moved the steel cover to the side. The tunnel, built in the 14th century, was for just this event. He climbed out, he looked out the window, and he could see the army trucks leaving. It looks like they're going. We'll wait until it's light, then go back and get our things. Katerina held the papers close to her chest. I could go through the garden. They would never see me. No, no, we'll wait until light. They sat in the darkness with their thoughts. Katerina would have said yes a thousand times, and now darkness. Thalia barely contained her anger. She was responsible for the whole mess. How could she live with herself? Carlos felt pain, pain pressed against his chest. The darkness made it worse. He lit a match. Katerina took the matches from his hand. He bolted to the door and he was out before either one could grab him. He ran across the field. The night air freed him from the pain. He would run and run and run forever. But as he got closer to the garden, his legs got heavier. His breath was shorter, and he felt deeply tired. He slid through the gap in the tall chopstick trees. He walked down the boxwood hedgerow. He heard voices. He stepped softly. He stopped by the grave of the man who wore the fez 
and crossed himself. He went to cross over the pebble path when he ran into Francisco, the teenage soldier. They startled each other. Francisco wiped his mouth. What are you doing here? I live here, he said calmly. It's bad in there. Francisco vomited. I'm sorry, dead people make me sick. Carlos rubbed his back. It's okay, it's okay. Hey, did you get, did you get bullets yet? Francisco looked at the carbine laying on the ground. No. Next month, they told me. Carlos put his arm around Francisco. Can we keep this a secret? Francisco bent over and picked up the carbine. What do you think? I think you're a good guy. Go hide. They're leaving in a few minutes. We won't be back. They're going back to the gypsy quarter. Francisco looked at Carlos. Don't go in there. It's bad. You remember Marco the glazier's son? Yeah, of course. He's dead. His family is dead. They were killed while praying. I knew him pretty well. We used to hide and seek together. He said in a matter-of-fact way. A voice called for Francisco in the dark. He answered, Nothing out here. Coming. Good luck. Yeah, good luck. Carlos dipped back into the bushes. Francisco called into the darkness. If you are ever in the woods, be careful. Soldiers are being trained to hide behind trees and wait for the enemy to pass, then shoot them in the back. They say it is pretty easy. And you don't have to look them in the eyes. Out in the darkness, Carlos whispered, Thanks. Katerina and Thelia walked back to the hacienda over the field. The silver moon rested on the furrowed ridge with deep sadness and grief. The last army truck had left. Carlos had stayed hidden. Francisco hated his life. He hated death. His only comfort was that he had no bullets for his carbine. Carlos had, in fact, stayed hidden until the army truck left, and he walked into the hacienda through the broken door. He took a moment to assess the damage. Smoke and dust filled the air still. Somewhere he thought there was a fire. He heard a crackling of fire and followed the sound into the office. The carpet and the chair were burning. The logs from the fireplace had rolled out onto the floor from the grenade explosion. He rolled the log back into the fireplace with a broken chair leg. The chair leg came from Mr. Perkins' favorite chair. The seat was burning in the middle of the floor. He calmly went to the powder room off the living room and took a pitcher of water. He always filled the pitcher of water there. He poured the water onto the burning seat. He doused the fire. He surveyed the room coolly. The fire was out, but the smoke was bitter. He put a handkerchief over his mouth, and the smoke was hurting his nose and throat. He heard Katerina and Thelia call his name. He answered and left the living room. In the courtyard, Katerina cried over Mr. Perkins' body. She held his head in her lap. She took no notice of the giant pool of blood. Her clothes absorbed the blood from both Juan and Mr. Perkins. Celia squatted some distance away from Katerina and Mr. Perkins. She cast curses on Juan. Carlos watched from a distance. 
a distance compounded in his mind by the surrealness of the picture. Mr. Perkins was going to be his father. The more he thought about it, the further away it seemed. Details like Juan's shoelaces being untied stuck in his head. The way Mr. Perkins still gripped the pistol handle. The long wisp of gray hair that fell over his grandmother's right eye and the tears that tumbled down soaking the very tips of the hair. He waited for a drop to fall off the end, but it never came. Where do tears go? He crossed the courtyard and went to the kitchen. The soldiers had taken all the food. The cupboards were bare. He went to his room. His good jacket hung untouched on a hook behind the door. He checked the pockets. He had saved five pesetas. He dug deep and deeper and found them. He was relieved God was on his side. Carlos, Katerina, and Thelia spent the rest of the night and most of the morning burying Mr. Perkins and Juan. They placed Mr. Perkins in a grave next to his friend. Juan, they buried out behind the kiln. Thelia insisted the grave remain unmarked. He betrayed us, and this was all he could expect. Carlos couldn't bear not make marking his grave. He secretly made a wooden cross. He painted on the crossbar, Juan, idealist. He stuck it in the ground after Thelia had spit on the grave and went into the hacienda to gather her things. Katerina sat at the writing desk copying letters. She wrote several letters. She grieved for Mr. Perkins, yet she grieved for herself more. She would never let her needs and desires jeopardize Carlos. When she finished the letters, she called Thelia and Carlos to join her. She handed each of them a stack of letters. Here, I made copies. If we get separated, each one of us will have letters of introduction, bank letters, and address of Mr. Perkins' business associate in Bordeaux. It is a long way. I don't know how we're going to get there or how long, but there you go. We have to go. Thelia hugged Katerina. She was so grateful and sorry she was the one who let the bastard into the house. It wasn't your fault. If it wasn't Juan, it would have been someone else. They were coming for us regardless. Thelia heaved with despair and tears. Let's go to France. It will be an adventure. We have plenty of money. We have papers. She patted Thelia's back and, and she wept. Carlos studied the envelopes in his hand. Official, smooth envelopes with importance. And they were his. The morning passed quickly. The soldiers had tried to steal the Cadillac, but were unable to start it without a key. They would be back for the car. Carlos knew exactly where the key was hiding. They loaded their bags into the Cadillac. Carlos mopped the blood from the courtyard floor. When he finished, he stood in the middle of the courtyard and absorbed every detail of what they had done. The design of the mosaic was dimensional. God created it, guiding his hand. An American Jew hid from himself and his tribe until his friend, a man who wore a fez from the lost tribe, died. He loved us all. The dimensional lines proved that love was a unifying force. Idealism came and betrayed us. But 
Without it, none of the love would have existed. All these complex ideas raced through Carlos's mind. He couldn't understand why. Thelia called for him to come. He took one last look at the floor. Mosaic allows one to stand in the dimension of God. It makes life lighter and more bearable. The winter sun was warm. The land steamed. Katerina sat in the driver's seat, Thelia next to her. Thelia called, come on. Katerina asked, how does it turn on? Thelia turned to Katerina. You don't know how to drive? I thought you did. I never drove a machine in my life. I, I realize I'm, I am completely befuddled. I as well, my sister. I, I didn't think this adventure through. Carlos. They looked out the window. Carlos held the keys to the car. He said, I will drive. Katerina chirped. How do you know how to drive? The man who wore the fez taught me. He told me that in these times, knowing how to do many things is the key to survival. Thelia crossed herself and said, God bless the man who wore the fez. They laughed. The phrase stuck with them. They honored the fez and the man who wore the fez. Carlos slipped a pillow underneath him so he could be above the dash. His legs had been growing at an alarming rate in these last few months. Thank goodness for growth spurts, Katerina said. The mood was decidedly better as they turned onto the main road. They would drive as far as they could. Thelia sang gypsy songs. Katerina and Carlos sang as well, but Thelia was a professional and her voice was pure and beautiful. Their journey took them into the mountains. The government had not reached the mountain enclaves where the rebels rested and resupplied. They had no problem with the government checkpoints or the rebel checkpoints. They showed their papers, suffered insults about their lack of height of the driver, and let them pass. They found gas and food in small villages tucked in the mountains. They parked by the side of the road at night, and Carlos gave his grandmother and Thelia, a flamingo dancer, lessons on how to drive. When they seemed in control and well in hand, Carlos fell asleep in the back seat. For the first time since he was a baby, that sleep felt like a deep ocean. He wandered around aimlessly in his dream, fondling the pesetas in his pocket. He saw his father studying law, his grandfather sailing on the ocean with his great-grandfather. He saw his grandmother snapping green beans in their old kitchen. He saw Thelia dancing in one of the dark clubs in the gypsy quarter to the delight of the audience. He saw geometric lines. He saw things in three dimensions. Mr. Perkins talked to him about perspective. The man who wore the fez told him, to check the oil. He woke up then screamed, We must stop! Katerina slammed on the brakes. What's the matter? Did you have a bad dream? No, 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 I forgot to check the oil. We must check the oil. Carlos was insistent. Thalia woke up from her hazy sleep. What's going on? Katerina pulled the car over to the side of the road. She had been going very slowly because of all the people on the road. The French border was just across the bridge. 
A few hundred meters beyond the bridge was the frontier. The French flag marked the line between France and Spain. Crossing through customs took time. Carlos got out of the car. He opened up the trunk and took out a rag. Caterina and Thelia went off in the bushes and do, to do their business while they had a chance. Carlos opened the front hood. He climbed up on the bumper and stood surveying the mighty Cadillac engine. It was very hot. He pulled the dipstick and wiped the oil off, stuck it back into the oil pan and pulled it out and checked the markings. There was no oil in the engine. We need oil, he declared to no one. He spotted a milk truck parked just on the other side of the bridge. He decided to walk over and ask the driver for a can of oil. Katerina and Thelia came out of the bushes. They saw Carlos walking toward the bridge. Katerina called him and told him to come back. He did so dutifully. I went to ask the truck driver for some oil. We don't have any. What did I tell you about separating from us? Always take your papers. She reached into the car and gathered his leather pack. She slipped two French francs into his hand. They might be French. They like their own money. Carlos set out to cross the bridge. Curious, Carlos peeked over the side of the bridge. The bridge was crossing a very, very deep gorge with a river at the bottom, raging from the melting snows. He looked back at his grandmother and Thelia standing in the middle of the road next to the car, waving furiously at him not to go near the edge. He came up on the milk truck. The driver was eating a sandwich, a baguette, and ham. Carlos asked him if he, could, if he had a can of oil he could buy. The driver, who was letting the engine of his truck cool before climbing the next long grade into France, happily obliged. He got out of his truck and opened his toolbox. Precisely at that moment, the lid of the toolbox slammed down. Chips of the pavement began to dance. A German fighter strafed down the road. When Carlos finally realized what was happening, he looked back at his grandmother and Celia. Celia was lying on the ground, bleeding. His grandmother waved at Carlos to run. She blew him a kiss. The second plane strafed down the road and killed her. It dropped a bomb in the middle of the bridge, blowing it up. Carlos stood in the middle of the road, staring in disbelief. The whine of the fighter engines faded. He turned and he ran towards France, just like his grandmother told him to. Two weeks later, he presented his letter to Isaiah Perkins, the brother of Mr. Perkins. Mr. Perkins cried over the loss of his brother, and Isaiah Perkins took Carlos to America, where he raised him. Carlos became a successful architect, and in 1975 he returned to Spain. He bought the Hacienda. He restored it. And when asked why, he answered he wanted to live in all the dimensions of love and memory he found among his mosaics. Carlos died in 1998. His wife of 40 years, who looked very much like Celia when she was young, found five pesetas in the pocket of his good coat.
for the story, Scott. What do we have planned for next week? Um, for next week, we're going to recount. I'm going to recount some stories um, about Vessel Assist. Many of you know them as Boat US. Uh, they're very, very vital um, service um, for all the boaters in the United States. Um, there are other companies worldwide that do the same thing. And essentially what they are is they're a towboat on the sea. Um, when I came to America, uh, I was brought over by a producer to to write uh, the Grateful Dead movie, and which never got off the ground. But anyway, I was paid to write the movie, but I needed to do something because as you're waiting as a screenwriter to get your next gig, um, I did what was natural, which is to find a, a job in the marine industry. And in this case, um, I ended up with a job running Vessel Assist out of Marina Del Rey for about four or five years. And I'm going to recount some of the stories and some of the other things that go on. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.